Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Gareth Jones, head of the editorial team at Civil Society Media. We touch on a range of stories reported by Civil Society Media and find out more about the remit of their many publications. So, without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce my interview with Gareth Jones. Hello and welcome to Charity Chat. I'm with Gareth Jones, head of the editorial team at Civil Society Media. Hello, Gareth. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thanks for joining us. Um, so let's start by asking the question, what is, what is it that you do uh, and who are you? Yes, <laughs> well, I'm a journalist by trade, although I, did, I tried to dabble in public policy a little bit a few years ago before realising that journalism was really my bag. Yeah. So I, I started at Civil Society Media back in 2005, actually. Um, was there for quite a while on Charity Finance Magazine as a reporter before going away for a few years, coming back uh, to be editor of Charity Finance Magazine. And then just this, uh, just this last couple of months, actually, I've stepped up to be head of the editorial team and we're going to be recruiting think for a new editor uh, of Charity Finance in the next couple of months or so. So time will change, but interesting stuff to uh, get involved in uh, seeing things on the bigger picture. It's quite yeah. exciting. And you said so journalism is your background, so, and, and is, it, is it that you were specifically interested in um, the civil society? Is that, is that why you kind of went for this kind of uh, Yeah, well, I mean, I always had high esteem for the charity sector, to be honest. Uh, you know, back in 2005, before the, the Great Recession and that sort of thing, I, was, I, I didn't do a journalism qualification. I just applied for this job that was out there. I thought, mm, charity sector, that sounds good and yeah. worthy. I, I like the sound of that. And journalism, I like the sound of that as well because I like writing. So I'll apply for this and uh, happily managed to get it. I think mainly because I was good at maths, which not every journalist okay, is. Right. But, uh, managed to um, get myself through the door and work my way up from there, really. Yeah, fantastic. And, and what is it that your organisation does then? So Civil Society Media is the overarching organisation, isn't it? And, yes. And, and how is that comprised? Um, so I don't know how aware people are of this stuff. We've got many brands going on at the same time, but uh, we have three. Uh, we're basically the largest dedicated publishing house for the charity sector, I think. Um, we publish three print magazines, which are charity finance magazine for finance directors, fundraising magazine, uh, for fundraisers, which also goes out to all members of the uh, Institute of Fundraising, yeah. and governance and leadership, which is for trustees and chief executives. <coughs> we also have the website civilsociety.co.uk, which is where everything goes up, but particularly our news content. And there's a daily email out every lunchtime, Civil Society News. And then we do a whole bunch of events uh, from Charity Finance Week and the Charity Finance Summit in October to Fundraising Live, uh, Fundraising First Thing, is that what it's called? I think so. And uh, Trustee Exchange, all sorts of stuff. And probably our biggest one is the Charity Awards, which is every year in May, which uh, is the biggest and best uh, award ceremony for the charity sector. I'm not just saying that. I think we actually do put more resource into it than anyone else and don't make a lot of money out of it. We sort of do it because we we believe it's a good thing to do. Uh, and that's nice for us as journalists actually to engage with charities' causes, whereas often you know, we quite often we talk about finance from a perspective you can, or fundraising, how you fundraise, and it doesn't matter what your cause is. But uh, that's the one time of the year where we really look at the best charities doing the best cause-based work and get to dig into those. So it's quite quite nice for us as journalists. And is is that as a lot of the work you're doing? Is it with a view to helping to improve the charity sector? Is that part of your 
yeah, absolutely. So I mean, our, we actually have a our organisation motto, if that's the right word, yeah. is uh, to help organisations that do good to do better. Right. I suppose there's a few organisations that do that, but um, for a private publishing company, I think that's quite quite rare, probably. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's, it's all about education. That's the thing that we. If some sometimes we do things just because people will find it interesting, but the vast majority of the time, if, if an article is to pass muster or a speaker at an event, they need to be telling uh, telling people something that they can learn from. Right. I mean, I think that you know we, we have a similar viewpoint at charity chat. You know, this idea of um, empowering people in the charity sector with more information and more knowledge to go out and do their jobs better, and also to hopefully raise the profile of the charity sector outside of that. The audience is the charity sector as well to uh, to try and get more support for it. So. And, and in the, the the things that you're kind of reporting at the moment, are there any kind of key themes that are coming through, or, or main um, kind of stories that are coming through? Yeah, so I mean, there's a few. Governance seems to be a, a perennial topic. There's uh, some quite heated debates about whether governance is up to scratch in charities. You have cases like Kids Company, yeah. for example, which actually I think is a, a bit of an outlier. It's not maybe shouldn't be used as a catch-all for the problems of the sector, but I sure. think there is. A difficulty that you've got a bunch of unpaid trustees and various charities uh, yeah. being expected to take responsibility for huge issues and to know about all these things, especially in the larger charities. Mm. How can a, an unpaid trustee really spend the time uh, getting to know every part of the charity? But equally, I would have uh, some worries about letting more charities pay their trustees because that could lead to trustees pursuing growth at all costs and yeah. Uh, yeah. that sort of thing. So. Um, and there have been a few conflicts of interest reported I've seen, I think in civil society and other and, and newspapers and publications elsewhere about how, you know, um, there have been questions raised around trustees being paid for offering services to the charities they are trustees yeah. of and things like that. So some of these clashes of... Yeah, and that's even when they're not supposedly being paid. So. Well, absolutely. The unitary yeah. board, I don't know if you've heard about that concept, is quite an interesting one. A few charities do it, but you have to have... The charity commissioners are reluctant to actually let charities go down that route if they can avoid it. But actually having some one, two, three executives of the charity sit on the trustee board so that there is a certain... Uh, presence of paid uh, paid staff on the trustee board uh, to give that insight. Right. It's all debates. I don't sit that strongly on on one side or, or the other, but I think it's quite an interesting. Yeah, you know, if you're saying unpaid trustees are, are struggling to, uh, you know, have the, the expertise and the, the knowledge of the charity, then maybe yeah. bringing the ex- executive on board could be a, a way to go about it. Way of that's helping. one. Uh, that's one that just knocks back and forth over the years. Payment yeah. trustees, we've talked about that 10 years ago. But. Absolutely. <laughs> and I suppose a lot of these issues do kind of raise their heads every few months or every 18 months or so. There seems to yeah. be reports, media pick up on reports of, um, for example, executive pay. It's kind of something that I've seen over a number of years. It kind of big, kind of rears its head, you know, whether executives should be paid as much as they are in different charities. Yeah. Um, and what about, I mean, at the moment, obviously, we're kind of living in austere times and we have been for a long time. And it seems that there's more demand, and certainly anecdotally, I think I've, I've seen that there's more demand on charities, and then there's um, there are drop-offs in, in some cases, uh, different types of fundraising, and then there's been issues back in 2015, which was a big year for fundraising specifically, where um, quite a number of exposés of bad behaviour and things like that. Are you are you seeing with society that you're you're having to or covering more of these issues around charities struggling? I think 
It's been pretty constant, I suppose, since 2010 when, when things started. Uh, you had a lot of charities that got into trouble around around that time, a couple of years following that, particularly those. I think things maybe have leveled off a little bit in the last few years. I don't, I'm sure your listeners will have their own personal experience and might know better than me, but certainly in terms of there was a lot of charities shut down around 2010, 2013, especially when the government ended its strategic partners program, so a lot of the umbrellas uh, went. And I have noticed maybe in the last couple of years uh, some charities starting to, uh, it's almost like they were able to carry on maybe on reserves for five, six years, and now are actually reimagining their, their business models and people like I'm sure a lot of people know about Mark Atkinson the work he did at Scope to actually yeah, yeah, getting rid of all their uh, government services and turning yeah. themselves into a much leaner uh, campaigning organisation yeah. so there's a few charities I think doing that sort of forgoing the, the, the simplistic measure of income and trying to focus on what really works so we're not seeing a lot of I don't think a lot of real charities going out of business with the exception of those which are really reliant on government funding where potentially there is a bit of a problem because everything in government procurement is based on cost 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 and they're just trying to drive down margins there was uh, I think it was four children and the lifeline project were two high profile ones I think the, the project was saved by going into the likes of action for children but we're getting to a stage now we have to be a really enormous mega charity to have the um, economies of scale to be able to deliver public services now so it's, it's an ongoing debate We spoke with um, Mandy Johnson a few um, months ago and she at the time was the head of the Small Charities Coalition and she was talking about um, how small charities could potentially work more closely together to provide a, a kind of a consortium approach, I, I'm using that term, I don't think she did, to, uh, to offer services and provide better service to their, their joint beneficiaries. And are you seeing any kind of suggestion of that in, um, in, in the work that you're doing? I'm seeing, I think there's barriers to it, to be honest. I think it's, uh, I mean, we, I'm seeing it a bit. We did a story today about uh, two Scottish charities, again on the large end, to be honest, uh, Enable Scotland and uh, Sense Scotland, I think, forming together as the, it's not a formal merger, but there's a partnership group called the Piper Group, which is kind of sort of, uh, sits above both of them and coordinate things and share back office functions and that sort of stuff. Yeah. That's really good and I don't see a lot of it certainly lower down the chain. I think I think there are barriers to it. We had an interesting article in Charity Finance, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, from Siv Bangan at the Open University who was saying that actually you know, the research that she's doing is finding that finding the perfect match between two organisations which might have different sensibilities uh, is actually quite difficult in practice and then even if you decide to collaborate together there's a lot of work that has to go into making mm. that a functioning relationship otherwise relations can easily break down. And then there could be a huge waste of time and energy going into that if it doesn't work out. So I think I'm all for more collaboration, but yeah. uh, probably they're, they're in practice it's a little bit harder. Mm. And there's a sort of a, uh, it's almost a paradox when if you're too similar to each other, then there's almost no point in collaborating because you're just doing the same thing. So you want yeah. complementary skills for your charities to work alongside each other. But obviously at the same time, you can't be completely different but you're not working towards the same goal. So there's Absolutely. almost a sweet spot that you're looking for. There were uh, been a few voices saying in, in recent months as well that uh, 
there are too many charities working in England and Wales, and I, I believe there's something around 170,000 registered uh, charity commission in England and Wales. Um, is that something, does civil society get involved in conversations like that, in topics like that? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. It, we don't have a sort of party line, but individual, individual journalists might weigh in with their opinions here and there. My personal opinion is that I'm going to... I don't think this is sitting on the fence, but it's sort of a nuanced view, which is that, yes, there are probably some charities that could merge, when they're, and they're not, because yeah. either because of self-interest, people defending their patches and so sure. on. I also think it's a bit, maybe a bit uh, too easy to say that there's too many charities and you should merge, you should merge, and you should merge. Yeah. Because actually, if you think about what defines the charity sector and makes it different to something like the state, for example, is it is this multiplicity of different organisations all doing different things. Mm. We want small charities, we want you know, one person in one place doing one thing one way and one thing, person doing it another another way. One person might be doing it badly, but the freedom that that other person has to do it their own way means that they can maybe come up with a really innovative idea that wouldn't otherwise have occurred. So, and also, I think it might have been Mandy Johnson actually who did a great blog about just about the localism and how two charities might merge in an area, but actually when they come together and they don't suddenly elderly people who are accessing a service are finding that instead of having a meeting once a month in their particular locale it's one once a month uh, you know two bus rides away or something like that sure, so, and, sure. and the food quality of the food goes down because people are focusing on uh, economies of scale or whatever yeah, so yeah, just, yeah. I think I'm, I think there's you know, so there's a desire for us as human beings to control things and make things better, which is good, and we can always nudge and urge, but actually, it's the vast, messy nature of the charity sector which is what makes it, I think. Yeah, the charity sector covers so many bases, doesn't it? You know, in terms of so many services and yeah. um, and, and benefits to, to, as you say, kind of sometimes very um, isolated communities too. The, the loose and baggy monster, as it's called in academic Absolutely, circles. yeah, yeah. I like that, loose and baggy monster, yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and in terms of, uh, I know that they're, you know, they're just one example of, um, of negative press, which I believe didn't have much of a basis, was uh, the Churn Fair Foundation, which I believe is now closed down. But uh, some time ago, there were a couple of things that they, they reported. They, they came out with a report which criticised um, investment in uh, sorry no the, the percentage that charities were giving to a cause and they, their figures um, were very questionable. Um, there, there seemed to be a lot of kind of um, in, in general press as well. There seemed to be a lot of attacks on charities. Is does civil society does it, does it take? We kind of already talked about it a little bit. But does it take a standpoint in defending charities in those com in those kind of conversations and out outbursts from the media? Yeah, I think so. Uh, if you look at uh, our web stats, actually, uh, some of our most certainly blogs uh, in terms of blogs, some of our most popular ones, uh, the ones which there's, there's a certain template to the headline. It's why X newspaper is wrong about. Right. Okay. <laughs> so uh, anytime be it the Times or the Telegraph or the Daily Mail write something silly about the charity sector we'll, we'll try and take the opportunity to yeah. debunk that and say say why they're wrong they still keep putting out these stories but hopefully uh, hopefully we're not just preaching to the converted and this stuff gets shared and uh, helps them 
right some of these wrongs. Do you, do you think that will things, is there hope that things will change or do you think it's just the nature of the industry that there will be these these reports and then they will potentially print a retraction age 10, you know, in a, in a few weeks' time if, if they are developed? Um, I think often often it just gets ignored. I do believe that the, the Gina Miller thing, Turing Fair Foundation, the Telegraph did have to retract some of that and there was some threats of legal action and that sort of thing. So. Yeah. It can happen, but that was, I think that's a rarity actually. I think for the most part, we just, just see a silly story. And then, I mean, the National Trust had, I think it was, uh, well, I mean, the National Trust has had so many stories about it in the Telegraph and we've struggled to keep up with them all. But uh, I think to a degree, charities would rather just say, that we're not going to, we'll just move on and focus, focus on, on the, on the good stuff. Yeah, There's yeah, a lot yeah. of stuff about myth, myth busting. Yeah. Uh, it's always tempting to try and debunk these myths and we do a bit, but actually I think there's evidence that the more you, uh, if you say, I'm going to have a campaign to say that this is not true, then actually yeah. all you're doing is raise, raising awareness in people's minds. Absolutely, absolutely. As I've just done in asking that question, actually. <laughs> <Of course>. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right, I suppose, in saying that civil society is essentially your your target audience is largely the charity sector? Are you selling outside or are you providing information outside of the charity sector to <clears throat> kind of Joe blogs on the street? Or no, not really, to be honest. We are very much focused on um, people within the sector, the educational bit. We often, especially the roots of the company being in charity finance magazine, yeah. a lot of that is very technical stuff and that, you know, that's the real bedrock of what we do. Uh, <coughs> partial exemption methods wouldn't be of much interest to members of the public, but they're vital for, uh, for um, yeah, charity VAT specialists or finance people working in charities. So. Yeah. And we do bridge out on that, especially on the news side. There might be stuff about the scouts seems to get really well picked up. There's a lot of scout, scouts and scout leaders out there who will pick up yeah. on the story we've written about the scouts, so that will go far and wide. But at, at our core, we are uh, about serving the charity sector and people with them. And, and your website is free to access for anyone that wants to uh, to read the articles and understand more about civil society in general. And yes, well, with caveats, the, the, the new stuff is all free. The blogs are all free. Uh, the um, the in-depth feature content, which appears in the magazines, is behind a paywall. That's our, our business model, I suppose, to encourage people to buy the magazine so we can fund the free stuff that we put out to help people. Yeah. And I know I've, I've for one, have found... Uh, I, I regularly read fundraising magazine because I subscribe to that and uh, I find that very useful. And we've even, one of the charities I've worked for, we've even been in the fundraising magazine as well. So I know the process, but are you able to talk through the process to our listeners if, if they feel that their charity has something really uh, interesting to say or has an event coming up they'd really like to talk about or you know, successes or challenges? What, can they can they approach civil society media and, and yeah I think uh, we're more approachable than people think I would say actually I would say a lot of the content we get is from um, professional advisors trying to sell themselves to the sector by getting sure but actually it's the charities case studies in particular in fundraising that are really well, I'm not going to say they're more valid than the other stuff from the professional advisors but they're really important and probably the harder for us to get to so anyone who's got a, a great project that's going on uh, do just get in touch uh, all of our journalists are on firstname.lastname.civilsociety.co.uk um, can't promise we'll publish everything but if you've got particularly if it's innovative 
if, yeah. uh, if you've thought of a new way of doing an, es an established thing or just want to tell us about the work you've been doing, then uh, case studies are all, all good. And also on our, our events as well, we're always very happy to have charity speakers come along. And my feeling is uh, the charity sector, I think, is a more collaborative sector than probably other sectors. And so there is this willingness to share good practice among charities and between charities and we're happy to facilitate that. And what, what we can bring to that process really is, you know, our, our journalists are, are trained in writing stuff in the most clear way and picking out what people will be uh, interested in reading. So we're happy to you know, take what you've got and massage it a little bit and put it out there in a nice glossy format with some pictures. Core cost seems to be a big challenge for charities. What, what advice would you have for how charities talk about their core costs? Well, uh, yeah, so I think uh, there is a bit of a problem of information uh, in terms of funders are going about it the wrong way and uh, thinking that they only want to fund uh, particular causes rather than the, the vital back office stuff. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm using the phrase back office advisedly, but yeah. actually the point that I will come on to is that this separation between back office and front line is pretty arbitrary and actually you can't have a front line without the back line and the two enhance and enhance each other so that's one thing I think charities should get away from in their fundraising marketing is to this idea that you know, 99 pence out of every pound goes to the front line and that sort of thing because actually that's just playing into this narrative that members of the public have and which uh, charitable foundations have which is that you can minimise the back office stuff and just put money towards the front line but actually if you've got money going to the front line and there's no one has told anyone what to do with it then or there's no safeguarding safeguards yeah. where you might you've got someone like Oxfam which is reluctant arguably reluctant to uh, spend money on safeguarding and yeah. now they're pumping lots and lots into it because we had all the scandals but actually that all came out of a, a reluctance to spend money on things that really matter to support the work that's going on on the front line. And it feeds into that narrative doesn't it? I, th I think probably any fundraiser that's worked in the charity sector for more than a day will probably have had this question come out of are you a, are you a volunteer and then the suggestion that we should all be volunteers that we shouldn't be paid um, that you sometimes get and and this idea of not investing in uh, fundraising or, or in the charity governance as well is another thing I suppose there's a balance to be had there because if you invest too much then it kind of questions as to whether you're spending too much money away yes, from the cause but it's difficult isn't it because you don't want to be inefficient either no, no I think being honest with your funders uh, if we're talking about institutional funders then being honest with them up front about your core costs so you need your finance team to truly understand what goes into delivering your project both in terms of the front line and the back line support that goes into that and then you need your um, your bid writers or, or so on and so forth to be willing to be honest about the fact that it might be 20% of uh, the money that you're going to be receiving will go into the core functions yeah. and explaining why that's, that, that's so important absolutely and I, I suppose you know I've we've had conversations with the likes of Cathy uh, Roddy in the past who did a, a couple of episodes ago we talked about investment in fundraising and we you know talked about it in terms of when you're talking to a, a funder or a donor or a supporter however you want to call them um, it's making the case that isn't it better that we invest five hundred thousand pounds into the charity in order to raise a million 
than to spend you know fifty thousand pounds in order to raise a hundred thousand pounds. You know the the kind of the scale of what we're doing, and I know you know the larger the charity gets, the more costs they're having to incur. And sometimes there are clever ways that charities can do that if they've got um, trading arms and things like this. But otherwise, it's about investing some of the voluntary gifts that you're, you're receiving. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of rationalisation of that, isn't it? We've got a bit of a problem. This is that every charity penny is seen as uh, sacred, and it, I mean it is in a way. We want to take our donors' donations very, very seriously. But sure. It'd be nice if we could have a little bit more of a entrepreneurial mindset so be willing to launch a new product or a new campaign and if it fails then it fails and it's obviously not good that the money is lost but if you don't venture into new areas we talked a little bit about the constrained funding environment but if charities are to sort of adapt and, and grow then they're going to need to move I'm going to say move beyond fundraising. I don't like that because that's fundraising is still going to be the bedrock of what charities do. But sure. there might be social enterprise activities yeah. that you could be doing, you could be selling services and that sort of thing. Mm. It's all about the. I think it's the diverse uh, funding mix, isn't it? Having your mix between your donations and your, your trading activities and your uh, legacy income. Or, yeah. or being holistic about it, understanding where your sources are, and being willing to invest in, in new things and doing things well, because ultimately. Well, yeah, it's a beneficiaries to do the best job we can. I was actually at a civil society event um, a couple of months ago, and uh, and it was about dealing with the next big media storm around. The, but one of the things that came out of it was around kind of the honesty that charities are showing their supporters when they say to their supporter this is what we got wrong and there are a couple of examples of charities that now in their um, end of year report or the, the impact report that they produce for their supporters they have a page in, in one or two cases where they say and these are the things we didn't get right which is very honest isn't it you know this sense of being transparent and being very honest with you, I suppose and I suppose it could backfire if you're not careful but but then there seems to be a real um, sense of helping the supporter understand what it is you're doing and not just kind of sugarcoating everything and saying oh we're you know let's not talk about that because you might like it yeah well i couldn't couldn't agree more i mean i've read enough annual reports and accounts in my time to know that some of them are quite quite dull when it's just a, a list of the we did this project and we did this project yeah. and it's all very massaged and saccharine and there's, there's people good advocates out there who will say that you're better off being honest people can understand if something doesn't work and you can be honest about it there's big debates going on in charity finance circles at the moment about the annual reports and accounts and whether it's actually fit for purpose about who, who is the audience for this yeah yeah are we speaking to beneficiaries as well as are we speaking to the general public or is it just accountants and uh, sure um sort of journalists finance journalists and, and whether they're fit for purpose in doing that and whether any member of the public is able to We've got something coming actually. Someone did a piece of research and found that you need a university degree to read the average oh, really? annual reports and accounts in terms of, there's a technical scale for yeah, uh, yeah. the level of comprehension that is, sure. you know, the sun is written for seven-year-olds famously. Well, that's, like that's, that. that's my mantra. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, there's a lot of people saying now, and it's, it's quite a, it's a debate on two sides, but mm. people saying now that actually annual reports and accounts are too much about numbers, yeah. income, expenditure, and actually sure. we should be moving on to how the charity achieves public benefit and how it helps the people it helps. And you can yeah. almost turn the entire thing on its head and approach it from a completely different perspective if you start yeah. thinking that direction.
are talking about how um, charities, in some cases, have mis seemingly misreported. So you know, you've got this kind of, you've got the pie chart against the listing of every registered charity on the charity commission, and there's that investment in generating income. And there have been a few charities, quite large charities, that have zero against that because of the way they've accounted for it. And again, it's you know, is that fit for purpose? Is that really transparent? And isn't it? Is it just kind of putting a plaster on an issue which is going to arise at some point? The next big uh, media blowout about the fact that uh, charities are being deceitful. So, well, it's a fair. I mean, almost a fair. I'm going to disagree a little bit. I think um, the problem is with the people wanting to put simplistic metrics on complex things, essentially. And the Charity Commission launched its beta um, register with all these pie charts and so on. And I mean, I, I wrote about this a couple of years ago, actually. And they, to their credit, I think that it's been the beta site has been taken off with the government. So if you're searching through the government, gov.uk, you will go back to the old Charity Commission yeah. website. But there's a problem with some of the statistics, I think. It, it, and it's a similar to the True and Fair Foundation, which is if you're a, an organ a charity with trading activities, you might well be invest spending a lot on goods to sell. And so your margins are thinner than a charity which um, would be taking donations and then you can spend the whole donation. So already that's just one example of where charity is not comparable and you're going to have wildly different percentages coming out. So, and there was also this idea uh, that uh, Joe Saxton put forward a key fact summary at the front of the uh, annual reporting accounts where you'd have certain metrics, which I'm in favour of simplifying things to s simple numbers, but there is a danger with things like percentage of uh, fundraising expenditure against fundraising income and that sort of thing where just becomes dangerous and you risk a, a race to the bottom of people saying I'm trying to spend less on fundraising yeah, yeah. when actually you could make more by spending more on fundraising so Absolutely. I'm a bit of a skeptic about uh, sort of percentages and metrics if they're not if they're not right Anecdotally, I've spoken to somebody fairly recently a supporter of a charity and they were saying that they will look at um, like for like wh what the charities are spending and then they'll choose the one that spends the least mm. on fundraising and again as you say it's a race to the bottom it's uh, a real risk and uh, smaller charities then often probably couldn't compete against the larger ones on, that, on those terms so exactly. it's not impossible yeah. that one day there'll be an app on your phone where you can bring up all the data from the charity commission website and you'll be able to say which charity has the lowest uh, uh, back office costs and so yeah. how can I spend on the one that spends the most on the front line and that charity might actually be useless at Absolutely, uh, delivering, yeah, yeah. delivering services on the front line but, mm. uh, and that's why the charity commission has a huge responsibility to uh, be responsible in the way that it uses metrics and yeah. I'm not sure it quite got it right with its beta site but as they tell us it's, it's just a beta site and nothing is set in stone. <laughs> Gareth Jones thank you for contributing to Charity Chat. Thank you it's great. enjoyed that interview with Gareth Jones. We certainly did and we hope that Gareth will join us again very soon. We explored civil society media, what they do and what they offer to charities. We talked about how the charity sector landscape has changed over the past 10 years. We talked about core costs and the narrative of investments in core costs which may not always be helpful. The discussion around charity finance and how best to articulate this to a charity's supporters 
and the general public is ongoing and Charity Chat have ambitions to continue to follow this. Again, if you would like to join this discussion, please do get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. I refer to my mantra, meaning the mantra of writing so that a seven-year-old can understand it. Just wanted to clear that up in case that was unclear. It's a marketing mantra which is relevant to marketing uh, messages and making sure that they're concise and clear. So thank you, dear listener. We hope you enjoyed the show. And thank you again to Gareth for his insights. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab, for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Axmit for the beautiful website design. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk where you can find all of our shows listed. RR Yard Photography for the pro bono images used on our website. And Forrester Fools who have been playing throughout the show and are playing us out right now. That's it from us. Thanks ever so much for listening. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.